Hello everyone and welcome to the final episode before the WTC of our series Creme de la Creme. Uh, this is Contact Lost and I'm Joker hosting today and uh, with me I've got Typhus from StatCheck, among Hello. other things, and Nathan, uh, although I'm not sure what your allegiance is nowadays. Uh, wherever I'm needed, it'll be fine. Sounds good. So both of the guys and myself will be running the studio stream during the event, and that's happening uh, not far away from now. Uh, actually, a week from now, by the time that we're recording, uh, we already know who the winner of the WTC is. So, gents, excited? Yeah, very. Yeah, very much so. Way more excited than I expected myself to be excited about it. Okay, uh, do you mean that uh, that's considering the fact that you're not playing this year for like the first time no, in forever? I, I think the game is wide open for who's going to take it. Which makes me more interested how it will unfold. Totally. Right, so uh, today we're going to be talking about faction spreads, about bots, and about lists. So without any further ado, let's jump into the faction spread. So uh, we've got a little graphic which should now be on your screens. Uh, it's stolen from the StatCheck Discord, uh, as I have found out. And um, let's start from the bottom. So a couple of factions are not represented at the event, main, namely Devguard, World Eaters, Space Wolves, and um, Votan. Nathan, are there any surprises here? Honestly, not really. As you can kind of see from the theme of all four of them, kind of combat's expensive in 10th edition, World Eaters are outrageously too expensive to make a decent army out of it to still die like the regular marines was what is it like two raid guard for a exalted egg bone something like that yeah exactly so it's just like it's it's an awful trade-up in points for what you actually get and they've got some nice abilities for and they're fun and everything else but fun doesn't win you prizes uh death guard kind of not as tough as they should be like, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually were even just mid-tier competitive if they had flat minus one damage throughout the whole army. But, yeah, they're just kind of too slow. Don't just reach potentials a lot of other lists do. Space Wolves, just, they just, they killed so many people's boys. They just didn't, they just don't do what they're supposed to do. Combat's I think at this point about the whole graph and when mentioning marines i think it is worth mentioning that if we look at the very top of the graph you can see there is like 31 to 36 and there is a marine there it means all kinds of marines included at the event not necessarily gladius or anything it's just marines that they are in the most faction so whenever we are talking about marines they are very popular but now when we will be going through the chart it is actually about a specific marine chapter being fielded. Yeah. And then to round out the bottom, Votan. Too expensive, not very good on the train. And yeah. suddenly they became really bad at shooting with how they hit. They hit yeah. on like forks where yeah. they shouldn't. So, yeah, massive nerf hammer for them. 
Too bad for those, but I don't think there's any point in uh, talking any more about them when there is a little bit more interesting stuff happening in the other tiers, let's call them. So uh, between one and five representations, we've got Blood Angels, Black Templars, um, Admech, Drakari, Grey Knights and Sisters. Am I seeing this right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, Typhus, any comments on this spread? So first of all, some of those armies should be at, at zero. Let's be honest. <laughs> Sisters, Drukari, and Admech, there are just... Okay, Admech, maybe there's an argument for Admech, but Sisters and Drukari, other armies just do it better. Like There is no point in a team composition where we are talking about eight armies. If something is just doing your role better, why would you play it? It's just pointless. Admech, like you can see an argument about actually like the mass torsion cannon or however they are called spam with like anti-vehicle. I don't think that's needed in any way, shape, or form. You have enough anti-vehicle weapons in different factions. Do not have to specialize for that one matchup when it might not even happen if you over tailor for it. And then the remaining three armies were actually taken by top teams, and those are like Grey Knights, Black Templars, and Blood Angels. Blood Angels were taken by Spain, Black Templars were taken by France, and Grey Knights were taken by USA. So those armies actually have a niche. They were taken for a reason. If We'll get into them briefly, but if you want to listen to like a longer explanation of what's happening there, how they perform, how they will be used in the matchups or pairings, we, on the stat check, Enter the Matrix, we've done deeper analysis of the French and US list. So you might want to head there if you want to listen for 10 minutes about that one army. But those armies are like, when I think Grey Knights are an army that you can make an argument they are like 7th, 8th choice within the team composition. They feel like poor men custodies with, with wings. I think that's a good comparison. An army that has insanely high skill cap, and I see it will bring high points early at the event when playing against people who are not versed against it. And But then when people will learn, the army will be scouted and people will actually understand what's the macro plan for Grey Knights. Suddenly that army will drop off in their performance. And Black Templars were built for one reason only, and that is to kill any Death Star and big blocks. Because that army, if you run the maps, is mental. And I think there is no better close combat unit in the game than actually those Crusader or Assault Marine squads with all the buffs that they can be provided by the Black Templars detachment and their faction and Blood Angels. Maybe, Nathan, you have something about Blood Angels, because I haven't looked into Blood Angels, when, which are taken by Spain. Yeah, so the Spanish Blood Angels, it feels kind of like a regular marine list, but then they put, say, a big death company unit in with lots of fists and things. So it seemed like it was. it's more like a generic And it's in Gladys as well, right? Yeah, yeah. With a couple of Blood Angels things. It's not actually like, it's not what you would maybe consider super tech into blood like it is it is it is an all sanguine guard and everything else it's mostly regular marine stuff with a death company block and some characters 
So uh, about those armies, do you think that these are uh, good eighth choices, if you will? Um, do they fit in well into a team composition? I mean, those three we mentioned that were taken by those teams. Yeah, I can see an argument for taking those. It depends what you take in the other by the other players, what are the other armies, what are their roles, how they want to use them. So I can see taking like GK, Black Templars, Blood Angels less so than the others. I mean, that Death Company block with uh, what was Lemartis or the Astorat, I don't remember which one was it, just slaps. But other than that, I'm not really solved. But the other armies, as I mentioned, like Sisters, Drukari, and Almec should stay at that zero bracket. Fair enough. Moving on to 6 and 10, we've got uh, Chaos Knights, Demons, Imperial Guard, Orcs, Dark Angels, Tyranids, and Tau. Uh, so out of these, I feel like Tau has quite a bit of a representation that... Uh, a lot of people might not have explored in the beginning of the edition, and then I would have expected more nids, to be honest, because of how well they can score secondary points, at least that. Uh, so where are your takes, guys, on this? Nathan, how about we start with you this time? Yeah, so I'll cover the armies that I'm a little bit more used to. So like Chaos Knights, a couple of the top teams have got them. Uh, Germany have got them. Uh, Australia have got them. They're very good at pushing primary. Uh, they're not bad at doing cards. Again, you still kind of have to waste a whole baby night to do cards. Uh, not the best army ability. It's almost useless considering how morale works and Battleshop works in this edition. I would say it's like just... one of the worst in the game. Yeah, uh, you can uh, yeah. just ignore it when playing, I think. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a nice thing when it happens once or twice a game, if that. It's very hard to actually engineer it to be useful when you need it to be useful. When we first saw it, it, it looked like it was, oh, this could be amazing. You have so much, you have a high OC and you can just turn off people's ability to take primary off you. And then it ends up being actually, it's too easy to pass. You can easily strat, strat your way out of it. And then you don't actually get the damage buffs against the unit you actually want to hit because he's not going to fail that many and he just passes the ones he wants to pass. Uh, Demons, again, also taken by a couple of the top teams. Uh, also spread into quite a few CSM lists, but obviously isn't represented here. Um, some top teams took them. Germany, notably. Uh, again, Monster Mash, good versus gun lines because you can't shoot a lot of it. Great combat, but then again, Invern and Combat Tax makes it a little bit more... It's difficult for like Bloodthirsters or... Chillaxi to necessarily trade up in certain units, like you charge a Death Company unit. If you don't kill enough to stop them just hitting you back with four hammers, you haven't really done much. Against Custodes, they fight first. So there's, against the actual combats you're going to see, you might not do that well. But they're, they're kind of a nice tech choice. Uh, Orcs are a fantastic underdog choice. They super, super... They, Unlike, say, Dark Eldar, who you think should be the best at it, Orcs are the best MSU army in the game. You can make it very difficult for people to actually take you off objectives because you've got to kill the truck out of line of sight. Then you've got to kill the boys. And like Typha said in an episode that we filmed, 
you might not have joined the war boss to the unit, so you then got to kill the character on top. So it ends up being trying to actually shift them all off an objective is not easy. And into certain matchups, they have the weight of attacks, advance and charge damage output to actually cause some army problems and to also just pressure the table with actually having that many units. Uh, Nids, like you said earlier, kind of felt that I thought they were going to be a lot more popular. They would, did really well in testing for us. Uh, I think they're one of the best all-round codexes with actual unit options to take. Potentially, they sometimes struggle a bit with damage output against certain units, but the monsters are mega cheap and super tough. Loads of great scoring. Quite a few armies, quite a few teams, sorry, took Nids. Notably, like, Australia took it with a, a horde variation, whereas you could have gone down the monster or hybrid version. So there's quite a lot to take with Nids. Uh, and then, I guess, Type is probably you better to talk about the guard, Tau and Dark Angels. Yeah, I, I think Dark Angels is basically a choice whether you want Deathwing Knight and yeah. or maybe Lion if you're a fancy Scottish boy that just wants to style on people <laughs> with his pretty model. Uh, but other than that, I think this is purely a, like you're still playing them, them in Gladius, just Deathwing Knights are one of the toughest units in the game. Period. Can Pulling you minus two damage them? Is that like no? You can only do that if you have them in the Dark Angel detachment. All ah, right, but you will play them in Gladius because advanced charge is a thing. Uh, so, yeah, that's the main reason. Just a best, uh, like most durable block in the game, I would say. Other than that, we have guard, an army that when tailored in specific matchups that cannot take indirect will basically wipe opponent of the board very quickly. And it will not be fun because you cannot do anything about this, uh, those balls. So it's an army that you can take if you have a plan for it in pairings, but it will struggle into some matchups while performing very well against food slogging armies, which I think what is very visible when you look at the list, like Poland and England both brought one, France brought one, and there's like a plenty of artillery guns that will just neuter everything that's foot slogging and not within transports or reserves. And then we have Tau, which is surprisingly durable army, with one of the best chaffings in the game being Tetras, where you pay 80 points for 14 wounds on toughness 7. It feels weird, especially when they move fast and also give you full rerolls to hit on a unit. That just feels incorrect. And they have those crisis units which move 18, shoot, then can move back 12 inches. Very, overall, very good army, I think. Also very hard to execute. So I'm not surprised not many teams brought it because unless you know how to play it, to a nearly perfect playstyle and execution, it can just crumble because you rely on one, two units to actually do what you need to throughout the whole game. So you need to babysit them and make sure that they do what you expect them and create a board that will help you out to do what you need. So it is very skill intensive, I would say. Right. And... Um... Looking at this faction spread that we've got, uh, we've got like 
seven factions left. So out of the ones we just discussed in these bottom tiers, let's say, uh, you've obviously had looks at lists, etc., etc. So assuming you'd you'd be making a team comp, right, and you'd be taking the top seven armies, which of these bottom tier ones would be your favorite pick for the eighth choice, Nathan? Uh, hmm. Personal bias makes me want to pick mids. Guard do a lot for you in pairings. Orcs are really useful, but I would maybe Tau, just because it because the way the meta kind of shifted and everybody started taking blocks. If you've got a really good Tau player, Tau fit in there quite nicely. But again, any of those like six till six to tens are a good argument to really put in. I'd maybe not. I'd maybe discount demons a little bit. Dark if we include demons as an ally, they would be like probably in the thirty-one to thirty-five bracket. <laughs> yes, that is true. Because yeah. they're they're either in CSM or TS lists all over the place. Uh, yeah. So not an easy choice. No, it's not. And I think that's one of the nice things about the WTC this year, the way we started it, where it's actually interesting that you do have eight options. Most of the teams don't have the same eight options. There wasn't a cookie-cutter team. I think there year. might be only four teams that have the same team comp when yeah. I was looking at it. so, And even within those armies that are at the eighth spot, I think like, when you're talking about competitive lists, like Dark Angels will be nearly the same, Tau will be nearly the same, Orcs will be nearly the same, Chaos Knights will be nearly the same, Guard will be very, very similar with some small changes, maybe like 500 points. But Nids, actually, the army, the list that were taken by Nids, you could split them into like few spots in that six to 10 bracket because Aussie Nids are created to just prey on those big blocks and sometimes on GSC when on the other hand you have nits that are taken by England that will have huge damage output and then you have something bizarre like the US nits that just do not make sense to me so there is it but at least this keeps the team setting interesting right like you said so we've got that going for us uh typhus the same question what is your favorite eighth pick so to speak okay so for me when it comes to eighth pick that now that i had time to digest everything and i wouldn't call it an eighth pick now is the aussie horde list of nits that one when i paired a little bit and fought through it I found it to be insane in pairings. So that one is my favorite choice, and I love it. And I want to see it fail miserably because they won <laughs> against us last year. Damn those Aussies <laughs> again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a menace. Right, uh, let's move on to the top factions then. So in 16 to 20, we've got Chaos, Space Marines, and Death Watch. Uh, so again, uh, any comments, guys? Who wants to take these two up? I mean, oh. Nathan, you have both of them in your team comp. We have none. Yeah, I'll take them. CSM, usually it's the Terminator block with the 
massive amounts of crazy firepower behind it, the Forge Fiends and a Blitz. Not the most amazing army at scoring. Uh, you do have to build into your list enough little scoring to go and do everything. But I can see a lot of teams took it because the raw damage output from Obliterators, because it also has the ability to indirect with a lot of uh, critical to hit type things, extra hits, full rerolls to hit, as well as the Nurgle strat to hide just important key units, just kind of makes it a, whether it might not always push the differential enough, because you still have to score your cards to actually 20 nil somebody, it's one of those, it will win games because it basically drops and your opponent doesn't have any toys to play with anymore. So he, if I'm not scoring cards, you're definitely not scoring any cards because you don't have any models left. Dead opponents do not score. No, they don't, no. Uh, so I can definitely see why quite a lot of teams took CSM. The damage output is just fantastic. Death Watch. Death Watch is quite the techie option. They give you quite a specific answer a lot of the time versus GSC. As long as you've built in enough, you can overtech into GSC to the point where you never actually get to play them. Or you can tech enough into them that it becomes like a usually a consistent small win for Death Watch. Phenomenal anti-infantry. The Desolators, I would argue they probably have the best Desolators in the game with the strats that they have available for them. Veteran squads are just very good utility. Frag cannons are good damage. Hammers are also good. If you take the Proteus kill teams, they're pretty tough. They also have great damage output from shooting. Uh, they're just quite expensive. Uh, very useful units for pushing things back. So, again, quite a utility toolbox. It's how the meta shifted away from being big things and big knights and big monsters to actually these infantry-based armies kind of blocks are what where the meta is outside of single. Really. Typhus, you want to add anything? Not really. I think Deathwatch is just a choice between what kind of marine faction you want to take. They will be better into some matchups. And CSM, I'm not so high on them. I find the army being mainly about killing the opponent. So when it comes to actually scoring points, sometimes it gets real rough because you have very expensive units, very expensive blocks that need to be centered around Abaddon to some extent. So you play a game that becomes very hard for you to score if the killing plan doesn't go your way. So furthermore, I think Chaos Space Marines require a little bit of pampering during the actual pairing process and choosing tables sometimes because tables can be make or break for them. So I'm not like fully sold on them. If you have a plan for them during the whole pairing process, sure. But this is an army that you take if you know that you can handle it during the pairings and you know what you want to do with them. Seems like 60 to 20 teams feel like they know what to do with them. Yeah, I, the thing about Deathwatch, I think that's the main thing that people thought about, that Death, like Deathwatch will counter GSC, which is true, but you will never get to play that matchup. So I think this is kind of pointless to, as Nathan mentioned, like you do not overtake into that because it doesn't change much. And I think other marine factions can still play GSC. So the thing is, what else that which is better into than say Dark Angels or what? 
So this is a point where you just figure out how it works in your matchups. And if you have a gap that DevWood will cover, for example, I don't know, Hornets, then sure, then that they are way better at that point. Yeah, I was gonna ask if you if you would say that Deathwing Knights pair better into stuff other than GSC uh, than Deathwatch, but I guess it's not a clear cut answer, is it? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the army and builds. Like they play way differently, so exactly. you cannot even compare them. They are like completely two different armies, except they have desolators. Yeah. Something in common, right? Uh, then in the twenty-one to twenty-five, we've got Imperial Knights, which I must admit, were, I would have expected to be more popular on one hand, because of how popular they seem. Looking at uh, stats from all sorts of tournaments across the globe, but then again, looking at the tables, uh, I would see why people wouldn't take them. Uh, because movement is, uh, well, a pain, to say the least. So, uh, Typhus, what's your take on Imperial Knights? So, with Imperial Knights, what we'll see on the next graph that we'll show in some time, they are an army taken mostly by the teams that are not within seed one. So, I would say teams that maybe not have played in our games on the terrain pack to actually realize that those nine-inch high ruins mean towering doesn't do shit. And then when towering doesn't come into play, suddenly you're playing overpriced firing like weapon platforms, which are not that effective at what they do at their price point. So this army, I feel like, will also be a big problem in the pairings because if you want to attack something, they will choose a dense table. And suddenly you're neutered because your movement is worse than, say, Chaos Knight, so you cannot play on the stables because you don't have that Chaos Knight strat. And not only that, you have bigger models and less models than Chaos Knight, so you're slightly worse at playing missions, and also you take away usually the agents from other Imperial armies that you have in your team, which is also a factor. And the other thing is, if you want to play them as defender, they cannot really play into some armies as defender, so they are in that weird spot during pairings where you don't really want to defend with them and you don't really want to attack with them, which is not great. Um, Nathan, you want to add anything on Knights? Yeah, it's the same as Type said. They're, on paper, they look a lot better than they are in actual pairings where it's very difficult to prey on somebody and need a board choice. It just, it just can't do both. It needs to maximize its towering, to prey on people, and then it doesn't get to pick a board. So you end up in this weird mid-pairing stage where you kind of put it forward and hope that one of the light tables is there available for it after some of its... Because it's not a great put forward, like Typer said, because you've got a couple of matchups that are just awful for it. GSC, Eldar will just prey on knights all day long. Um, but granted, that's, you can say that about a lot of the list, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's just kind of Imperial Knights. The Knights have always kind of been a bit clunky. They've always had an issue of if you get slightly too lucky against them, they start losing too many models. The, the score starts snowballing, but then that also works vice versa. 
in some teams, you know what knights do. So there's a there's a safety in taking knights sometimes where the matrix kind of is what it is. It's not as bad sometimes to be able to... That will probably go beat that. It probably will go lose to that. So you kind of know where they are. There. But yeah, they're, they obviously are popular. Uh, I think maybe some of the stats can be skewed a bit from previous from other tournaments because it depends what terrain you're playing on. If you're playing on like ping pong tables with no real proper line of sight blocking terrain, then yeah, knights are fantastic and shoot everything if they can't. Because I think not if everybody doesn't know, all the bottom levels of ruins are blocked windows for this event. So it's not hard to hide a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah, infantry all the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, then in 2630, we've got Necrons and Thousand Sons. Nathan, uh, what do you think about these two? Are you surprised, or are they kind of an obvious pick in an eight-man setting? They seem relatively obvious ones to take. Uh, Thousand Sons, I think we've discussed it on a couple of our episodes, they allow you to leverage the most amount of player skill, realistically. Uh, there's so many tricks you can do with your lists. A lot of Thousand Suns lists, while they don't have a ton of options, are all still kind of a bit different. Uh, the ability to potentially put slowing down units in your army, the ability to move things multiple times, do, do multiple Doom Bolts in a turn, to pump out mortals, to be able to gang up on something and if it's on an objective, do actually quite a lot of damage. Thousand Suns are, with a great player, will score very highly um, because they just have the capabilities of being able to do thing, all things in all games. They have movement, they have shooting, a little bit of combat. Magnus is fantastic. They have the ability to do some indirect shooting as well, or if you're close, a lot of indirect shooting uh, with that strat. So no surprise that Thousands of are very, very popular within the teams. They just needed a great player to play them because a bad Thousand Suns player, they are still effectively Marines. They can just die quite easily if you just charge them at people. Necrons, yeah, again, I think not... they are, to give my take on Thousand Suns, I think they are the most fun army to play in this edition at this point. 100%, the yeah. army that looks like you actually have a lot of agency as a player and your skill expression is very high in, with this army. Whereas I... This army, like, reminds me of previous edition when it comes to actual army choices and decisions on the board. There are so many small niche interactions and decision points that you just do not have with other armies, say, knights. So I, I really love them. And... Funny thing, I think when you actually speak to people playing Thousand Suns, they will usually mention that they actually like this edition quite a lot. And then <laughs> and then you see that it's mostly through their lenses that they are playing the army that is just enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you were saying about Necrons. Ah, uh, yeah, Necrons. Again, no real surprise. Super durable, if not. As, an, as a collective army, I'd say they're the most durable in the game, bar maybe some Dark Angels units and Custodes in some ways. Uh, and, well, we can say Eldar because they just have stupid rules. Um, but yeah, Necrons, super, super tough. If you don't have enough to actually take out whole units at a whole time, which is not a lot of armies in the current meta, they just keep coming back. 
and the board control is quite nice. Inherently, they have some flaws, not super fast. You have to tech some stuff into your army to try and get your card scoring up enough so you don't just lose badly on just annoying differentials. Like, the worst thing you want to have is an Ekron army that just didn't score any cards or didn't score enough cards. Neither of you did anything to each other, but the other person just pulls ahead of a 12, 13, 7 just because they just were able to score missions a bit better. But yeah, the Lich Guard bombs, very double Lich Guard or double Warriors or one of each seems to be pretty prevalent between most teams. Uh, if there's anything you want to add, Typhus? You tip crumbs. I think there are some choices to be made when playing the army, but I feel this is more of a droish army, less of an army that is meant to score high. It will just be very good at, at drawing those points out because it was... I would, when it comes to pairings, etc., I think you can compare it kind of to Chaos Knights. It's an army excellent at winning the primary game, but it can struggle with cards, but it is, it is just better than Knight. So if you are fighting for that one spot within your team, cool, you can make an argument for taking two drawy armies, but I think Necrons are just better at what Knights do. And also they will be a little bit better at secondaries with all the loan ops, some red deploys with Veil, etc. So they are not necessarily awful at doing the secondaries. Uh, but they are an army that doesn't really have the high killing capability of bringing high scores. Which is the problem. Unless you invest heavily into shooting, but at the same time, if you invest heavily into shooting, you might have problems with board presence. So it's a kind of a trade-off. Well, there are just armies that are much better at killing, whilst not necessarily being as good as uh, at controlling the table. Yeah. Right, and in uh, the most popular factions, 31 to 36, I think, uh, similarly to the uh, Zero show Inc., there aren't really many surprises here. So we've got Elda, GSC, um, all the Marines clumped in together, like you, Typhus, mentioned at the beginning, and Custodes. Um, so, uh, Nathan, why don't you start us off about some of these? Sure. Again, like you say, not a huge prize. Custodes just have arguably some of the best all-around combat in the game, because you can actually take it on guys who can push the objectives, uh, the primary objectives, as well as being survivable enough to actually stick around and do things. The really high OC, high toughness ability on, say, Wardens, minus one damage, and the one use only feel no pain. Plus, also just having a general feel no pain save is fantastic for them. Uh, most teams have taken them. The lists, even though We've said it in a couple of previous episodes. You don't have a whole lot of options for custodes, but all the lists are different. They've all gone for how many characters you take, how many blocks you take, how big the blocks you want to take. Do you take a little bit of shooting with the two uh, forge or tanks? Uh, they're all different enough that they're all interesting. But predominantly, some of the abilities and strats that they have are fantastic. Uh, Trajan's ability to ignore modifiers is very useful in this edition. It's huge in this edition. The ability to have fight first also means that when you are coming up against anything else that's deemed a combat army, usually the custodes are coming out on top. And they have the toughness to survive shooting up. 
So it's no surprise that they kind of made the top tier. Marines in general are Marines in general. So it's one of those, it's a combination of, they have some very good units. It's just what flavor of them you want. Dark Angels have abilities. Death Watch have abilities. Some people obviously took some interesting ones, like Templars are in the French team. Templars are also in another decent team where they 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 can fill a gap in your pairings that you're missing. But in general, yeah. And then absolutely no surprise, what, two teams didn't take Gene Seal Cult and no teams failed to take Eldar. Yeah, and I think um, GSC might be because they couldn't source the models. <laughs> yeah, literally might, that might be the only reason. Uh, don't need to tell you why. They're by far the best in the game. Eldar are just silly. They both have crazy high win percentages. They make this year's ETC actually quite, I don't want to say interesting, because a lot of people's Matrix now will have two really, really bad matchups and then their regular pairings. So I think, weirdly, interestingly, they actually kind of make this year quite difficult to win because you have two armies that kind of are leagues above pretty much everything else in the game, which is not something we've had at a WTC for quite a while. I can't think of anything like that since, like, typically. Seventh. I think yeah. early seventh with Screamer Star. Yes, things like that, yeah. Or Wolf Star or yeah. the Pine Hand Star, those kind of armies. So, uh, would you say a lot of games might come down to what is um, wasted on Eldar and, and Gene Steel Coat? In a way, as in uh, what army you lose to that matchup? Yeah, so I think say. so, but I think there are some armies that on their board choices can play those matchups. And I think you can actually see a lot of teams actually manage to find some solutions, say, into GSC. So I don't think necessarily which teams you lose. I think GSC actually have way more matchups that are not, I mean, they are not winning, that are more closer to a draw than Eldar. Eldar, I don't think they have a direct counter. They have like few armies that can hold them to a draw, but not a direct counter, I would say. Whilst with GSC, there's also main difference with GSC being an army that brings around 13 to 16 points per game whilst Eldar will bring you 20s. So I think holding GSC down to 13 is less of an impactful thing than actually getting Eldar down to 10, which might happen. So I think it will be a little bit about that in pairings, but I think the tournament will not be won by those pairings alone. I think it will be won by small tech choices and lesser army choices that will take place in the remaining pairings because I think both teams are expecting their GSC and Eldar to get the decent points, but then how the remainder will perform will dictate the result. Okay. Uh, what about mirror matches? Uh, are they just completely swingy or is there any room for skill to make a difference? I mean, how, how well you roll sixes are going first? <laughs> Okay. Fair enough. So taking into that wouldn't actually make much of a difference. Not a good no. teacher, right? You can try to, but 
you might pack, you might build your list to be better in the mirror, but then suddenly Wraith Knight will just kill your Wraith Knight and your Avatar, and you're like, cool. That was fun. I'm glad I played this turn. And then I kind of feel like the GSC mirror is actually kind of a draw. It's a little bit cards. If one person decides, if they both fully decide to like deep strike everything, and one person goes first, yes, it's 20 nil. But I'd, I'd be surprised if you went back to your captain and went, ah, I went for it and I goofed it. Whereas you could have just gone, yeah, we'll both kind of set up 70% of our armies, deep strike a lot, and then we'll play cards and see what happens. And then it's somebody's getting 12 to 8 points. I can see lesser teams going for that. Let's just gamble it as a way of swinging your matchups and i can see lesser teams going for those pairings where you pair those mirrors and just hope that they go your way as a way of actually lowering the skill gap between the teams and i think that's actually a valid strategy if you're the underdog 100%. so all right um to summarize this bit or the because we've got one more graph to show but uh to summarize this bit uh, would you before this submission would you guys expect any faction to be in another like tier bracket uh let's say one biggest surprise for each of you uh, nathan uh going through it i thought there would be more tiers. I think that the book is so versatile. I would have expected it to be in the 16 to 20, or realistically, I thought it was going to be in the 21 to 20, 25 kind of category. Other than that, it's it almost works out as, if you look at the graph that we've got in front of us, it's maybe Necrons are a bit lower, but it's almost a tier list. Like, of the armies that you think are the best in the game, this isn't far off the order in some places. So... Yeah, I thought Nids would maybe be a little bit higher if we're going to put one army from bottom half to top half. But other than that, no, the rest of it doesn't really surprise me that too much. I have one army that stands out to me because I got to play a little bit with it. And that one is Tau. I think people are sleeping on Tau. But as we were talking, I think they're a very high skill intensive army. So... But I can see that army being sleeper and people will not expect how well it will perform. Okay. Right, so we've got surprises. Uh, we've covered the factions in general. Let's look at uh, how the faction spread looks like again in the top-seeded teams. Uh, and Typhus, I'll ask you to explain this graph that we've now got on the right-hand side, if you will. And I will dodge this question and give it to Nathan, because this graph was created by one of their coaches. <laughs> uh, that is not mean I know exactly how it all works. But yeah, obviously the left-hand side is percentage of how, how many people actually took certain factions. As you can see, one person took Sisters, two people took Takari, two people took Admech, that kind of thing, a couple of Grey Knights. Quite interestingly, I think it's only, what, six Tyranid armies, which, again, is a strange thing that we saw from the previous graph. Uh, but as you can see towards the top end, everybody took Eldar. Almost everybody took GSC, Marines, Custos, Necrons, 
yeah, it's obviously it's what we just showed in the previous round. But more importantly is the right-hand side, which is top seeds taken armies. So this is not to say that certain teams are better than other teams. It's just to say that these are the top teams that finished in their placings last year, ended up being in seed one. This is what they've taken. So, obviously, every predicted Eldar, every predicted GSC, pretty much uh, don't think any of the top teams missed GSC. A couple didn't take Marines, notably, like Australia didn't take any kind of Marine army. Um, but the biggest one from this chart is Imperial Knights and to an extent Demons, where pretty much all of the top teams didn't take Imperial Knights. Australia took it. I can't think of any of the other top seeds who took Imperial Knights. The rest are pretty much all in the lower seed brackets. Uh, but adverse to that of that we can see is there was only six Tyranid armies, but quite a lot of them are in the top teams. So, yeah, I think England have got them, Australia have got them, uh, USA have got them. It's quite higher in the like what people thought they would be for those teams. Uh, other than that, predominantly most of it's as standard what you would see from the previous graphs that we had. Yeah, I think I the just, biggest uh, takeaway here is actually I think the Knights part. Uh, the top teams decided to drop them and that top teams actually brought more nits. I think those are my main takeaways because how else you can read it is that the bottom teams actually like settled on the certain team comps that are more popular within them and the top teams actually have more variety within their choices. Okay. Um, do you have like an average... Uh, it's a wild question maybe, but do you have like an average team comp so something that would be i don't know most popular or uh repeats itself. i mean if you look at the left graph it it is self explanatory it's just that. yeah, yeah for the top eight army there <laughs> yeah yeah that makes it and it perfectly cuts off at csm so you decide where demons are taken where it is thousands are thousand sons or csm <laughs> so you would actually have like if we were to go by the presence and how many times certain armies were taken, you could say that the team would consider of Eldar GSC, some kind of Marines, Custodies, Necrons, Thousand Sons, Imperial Knights, and Chaos Space Marines. And I think it kind of aligns with the stat check data about win percentages, but I think it is not applicable as much into teams where you actually need armies that are lesser known that will surprise people and that have a niche role in pairings like say orcs or those hornets that are just meant to maybe not win games but lose them by a little margin which are i think those roles are way more useful in team setting than you would ever go to win or lose event because then those armies would just suck so I don't think you can translate any of your win or lose experience necessarily into those WTC team comps because some of those armies you would never take like see Jack Harpster going for an event with Brainets. Hell no, like that <laughs> that one is not going to happen, right? And there are some of those choices like Matter Robertson going with Nits, 
like no you wouldn't if you were going to win an event so you need to include those choices and see how they will match up against each other mm, i think that makes it uh, a little bit harder to like get the team composition right uh, especially in eight man setting because exactly if you're playing a lot of singles you just all want to take elder right but you need a much wider picture actually preparing for this kind of event yeah <clears throat> right uh, i think that's enough talk about factions uh why don't we talk about the pod draw so I'll put that up on the screen in case someone has missed it. Uh, but if you have, shame of you if you didn't watch it live this year, because that was a thing. Um, okay, so um, any pots here that you find interesting? Is there any, like, a group of death that will be very close? Typhus, why don't you start us off? So first of all, for those underwear, Pods are made in a way that each pod has a one like seed one team, one seed two team, one seed three team, and one seed four team. So by the design, they shouldn't be a pod of death. Not like in football or whatever, where you can get. Well, no, 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 no. I have to stop you there because uh, these draws in football work in a similar way. Uh, so you also have seeds, but then you obviously can get a group pod where you've got the number one from seed one, number one from seed two, etc., etc., which is what you would call the group of death. Okay. You can see my complete lack of knowledge against football <laughs> because I just despise that sport. I don't know why you, would you watch that for 95 minutes and why so Polish people call it their national sports when we are clearly better at toy soldiers. But <laughs> it's only the problem of our nation, I guess. Anyway, so... Uh, how it works, you do not necessarily have pods of death and like teams that will take away from each other. But how this works when it comes to actual pods is that some teams will prepare more into their seed ones. So I would say that if you have teams from seed two or three that are notorious for actually being good at preparation and maybe their skill level is a little bit worse than those top teams, they can still take some points away from those top teams, maybe even a win, sometimes a draw. So I would look mostly into teams that either have a top seeded team from seed two. So essentially pod eight, I think Spain is one of those teams that was just barely not getting into the seed one. And you could make an argument that Sweden belongs in seed two, not seed one. Uh, throwing shade and stuff but that one would directly say that ooh, pod 8 there will be one interesting game that I can actually see going either way with a strong leniency towards actually England winning but at the same time I'm not discrediting Spain and thinking like they cannot make it I think they out of all the teams from C2 they can actually make it and the other pod I really love of how it worked is actually Iceland and Scotland against France. For those unaware, Iceland and Scotland were preparing together and cooperating with their team composition, with their ideas 
I think Icelandic people actually flew over to Edinburgh and actually played against each other. So they had a lot of preparation together and they shared a lot of information. And I know for a fact that they are together working to bring down France. So that's why I can see happening as well. And I'm so looking forward to it. If France suddenly gets like two draws and, or like a draw and loses one, it would be mind-boggling to me because how many players, how much preparation and how team-centered their community is, I think they should have it in the bag. But they have a tendency of sometimes underperforming as well, even though they have all the resources needed. And I think pot nine is interesting because there's Belgium and Belgium is one of those teams that I mentioned that are notorious at over-preparing. They have Liam VSL, who by now I'm pretty sure played like 30 games into just Australia or played with Australia list into his team and showing them all how those lists perform and how to play against them. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's actually a room for upset with Belgium playing Aussies. Do you have anything else to add, Nathan? Yeah, my favorite by far is Pod Nine. I think what's what's quite interesting is the Pod Four uh, includes all the new teams as well, so it's the little bit of the unknowns. So New Zealand is a new team this year, but they have some. Very you mean Pod Nine? You meant Pod Nine, not so, Pod Four. So I meant the um, uh, bracket. Seed Four. Seed Four. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, which has now put New Zealand in as a, a, a theoretically a lower seeded team up against reigning champions and Belgium, who are fantastic at pairing, and New Zealand have good players and they have some good lists. So that should be... I would still imagine Australia to come out with three wins out of those pods, but one of the biggest things you need to try and factor in when you're doing your pods is to try and maximise points because you are... Most likely, if you're trying to win the event, get the higher point differentials in some of the lower team games. So, say last year, USA almost walked out with like 350, almost 400 points from their three games. Um, so, it'll be interesting that I think Australia will still come out with three wins, but they'll lose some points along the way. Uh, interestingly, a pod eight. England versus Spain was, ironically, we played Spain last round last year, so we technically put Spain in the pod below. Now we have to play them. And I think, by like like you said, Typhus, they're easily top pod. They're, they were a really, really good team. They've got some phenomenal players. Very, very good list. Yeah, I think Sweden got easier matchups and ended up on that ninth place. I think Spain deserves that pod one more. Mm, Canada was ninth last year. Oh yeah. Anyway, Sweden doesn't doesn't necessarily yeah beat in that full one. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, right, we've got a listener question. Uh, so Pumbas asked, "How many yellow cards will be given out in pot eight? <laughs> uh, depends which matchups we end up getting. Uh, <laughs> one in particular uh, probably end up." with two red cards, which thankfully we've got six coaches, so we've got something <laughs> to fill in. Um, other than that, we, it was actually the round against Spain last year was fine. Uh, they were a bit gamey in some aspects, but it's the WTC. Everybody's a bit gamey in some ways. Uh, it's just going to be... It, the problem is it's, it's the last game of the day. It's also uh, 
one of the more weirder missions, which makes pairings a little bit more difficult. Yeah, it's kill more, right? Yeah, it's kill more, hold more. So it ends up being like, uh, okay, this, this is... It brings certain armies into it, say the Gunline Guard or those other armies, which I think both Spain and England have, where they both go, oh, cool, we, we can just kill more. and We don't actually have to... And it makes, say, NIDs a little bit worse because it means, oh, well, they... As much as spore mines are actual models now, I don't want to get them shot at the point. Um, so that will be a very, very spicy round. Uh, whether we'll end up with any cards, I hope not. I think we'll be all right. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't be the first team I'd have thought would be getting loads of cards, but I'm not going to name which team. Um, yeah, and I think at this point it's also worth mentioning how the pods actually work. So it is not something like in football, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm still not watching that one sport, <laughs> but I think from every group only two teams come out, usually, and they are going into a bracket, right? This yeah, that's is what you basically, do. you can see it as a preceding of a Swiss round, because the event has three games in the pod and then four games afterwards. So how you can look at it is basically, if you have 36 teams, you need like six rounds to have one true winner. That's how actually logarithms work. So in that case, you can look at the Swiss being like, I mean, pods being the first two rounds of Swiss and creating a preceding for the later round where you can actually expect some teams to go out with three wins, two wins and a draw. So basically being at the top end of the game, but it to some extent balances out those lesser teams in a way that they will play in a Swiss format moving on forwards against each other. And those teams then will play probably opponents of a similar skill, whilst the teams that you expect to go out with nearly clear slate will come out with those wins. So you then go to those four rounds and have like nine teams actually in contention for winning the event. So four rounds perfectly would mean that in round four you'd have two undefeated or teams with one draw playing against each other for that win. And furthermore, it doesn't mean there are elim elimination games, how, how it works in other sports. It means that you are continuing with Swiss. So if you just sleep earlier, get a draw, maybe lose, you still can fight for a podium. You probably cannot play for winning the event but you can still play for a podium because tiebreakers are a thing. So that's why Nathan was mentioning that in a harder pod, it can set you in a bad spot for the remainder of the event. Because if you win your games, but all of them are grindy and you win like 90 to 70, then all your tiebreakers will be awful. Which means that if you get to lose one game later, it means you will be last person in that bracket. If you lose two games later, you'll be last person in that bracket. And suddenly, from like seventh position, you end up in 11th or something like that. Right. And uh, I have to ask, uh, especially that you're a history expert, and I'm not sure if uh, you've uh, spoke about that in uh, one of your episodes, uh, but uh, was that like the reasoning of structuring the tournament like that, so that the top teams have to play each other and it's, uh, you know, less down to locking out in the pairings yeah i i don't know what's your experience nathan but i had so many events where like round one we would get france to then round two get england i'll be like what the hell <laughs> like, yeah 
Like we we have. And been... then round six, we would play against Wales, who are like the last seven, eight place. points lower, but we haven't played them yet. So we would get like a basically. I mean, it sounds rude, but after winning against five teams that won the event previously, then you get Wales, and they're like, "What happened? Why?" <laughs> Which was a problem. Yeah, like we had it four years in a row where we'd play like Greece first, and it's like, "Oh, that's great," but then you see, you look across the hall, and yeah, you're you're playing France or Germany gets like at that point. There was a less there was less teams that you would consider likely to win the event. So a little bit back then, it was a case of it was usually Germany, Poland who were winning it. They went on an onslaught for several years with the occasional Sweden win, but it was always a little and you bit. You guys, we we won England, one England, one Sweden, and then it was Germany and Poland for like yeah nine years. Yeah, but that always ended up becoming. Whenever Germany played Poland, whatever the result of that was, say so if that happened round four, you pretty much had the event kind of. If one of those teams won that game, it ended up being that's who wins the event. So this system is a little bit nicer to try and push the more difficult rounds later into the tournament. And now uh, for a plug, if you want to hear more about the history and stuff that was happening before, we've got an episode on Enter the Matrix about the history of the event and why it is organized the way it is now and why you have some rules like chess clocks and actual FAQs the way it is. So if you want to listen to that one, shameless plug. Interestingly, I have a question though, Typhus. Do you feel like this system benefits top teams to try and go on and do better later? Because you you do you do sorry you don't have that randomness of getting a super good team really early, but also I think there vice versa are, that you don't. I think there are some benefits. I think I like the system first of all. I like the fact that lesser teams get to actually play those top teams, which wasn't really a thing beforehand. So, and I think it just benefits the community because those lesser teams then can have a talk and figure out what's going on, how the other team is actually preparing and stuff. So I think in overall, it is better for the community, although I'm not the biggest fan of prep hammer, which can be a thing, because the lesser teams will prepare for their seed one team, or maybe like seed four team will prepare mostly for seed three to beat their seed three, but like seed three and two can try to fight the seed one, and while seed one is just preparing for other seed ones from other pods. So there is that level of prep armor. But overall, I like it for one more reason. Because sometimes you see those top teams starting the event slow. And this gives you a way to actually, if you have newer players, to not get as stressed because you're playing against the top team round one. You get an easier matchup. And I do not mean this in a way to actually insult anyone at this point yet. So in this way, you get them warming up, getting that stress out of their system, getting used to it, getting into the groove. And then those teams, when it comes to actually those important games, will be in form. Maybe they will be a little bit more tired. But also some of those runs, you can make an argument that are not as demanding as those you will face later. So I overall like it because it gives that startup and also gives a chance for 
those lesser teams to play those top teams. What's your thing, um, by the way? Do do you like pods or not? I do, but I, I, it depends how you look at it. If I was say like, again, I'm trying not to use the word lower team, but say, let's say a team who, because I used to play for Scotland for my first two years, and we had some really good players, but we sucked. So it was kind of a case of we were there for a lads weekend where we could drink beer, wear kilts, wear fake mustaches, um, and it was a fun weekend. So if I, if I was playing that now, say uh, say let's let's go pod A. I'm like say I'm I don't know Bulgaria. I'm like oh I want to have a fun weekend. Oh great I have to play Spain and England now. Whereas before I might have got a fun draw first round. Oh we might have actually won and then you played somebody and one of the other fun teams and got a draw, got a win. And you play them and you might actually go the whole weekend without really playing too many tryhards. Let's say it that that way. Sweats. Yeah, some, some sweaty <laughs> gamers. Um, but yeah, I guess from the other perspective, yeah, it, it allows you to ease into the tournament a lot easier if you want to say you're trying to do quite well that year. And it does delay some of the crazy matchups until a bit later. Whereas like we had in previous years, again, go watch our episode on previous history. It's a little bit, if you end up having, yeah, we are. Oh, we got Poland round two, and then we got Germany in the morning. So we've had our two difficult rounds out the way within less than half of the event. So it's like, oh, okay, when there was a time when there was less super top teams, the event was decided already. So yeah, I do overall prefer this system now. But yes, there's a little bit too much. You know your first three games. You prep your first three games. I, I like the pods being announced week before the event. Yes, I think that good. is enough to not make it overly prep hammer. Potentially, yeah. But you still have a little bit of the thing of like I would say, there's still a a different level between doing the different pods. Like I would say seven, eight, and nine. Like we didn't even talk about one to six because predominantly they don't look crazy scary for quite a lot of those yeah. teams. Uh, Whereas you still have not pods of death because you don't have like crazy difficult teams, but we still have a couple of pods where like the result is not going to be three O's. Whereas one to five, you can pretty much, and six, you can almost be like, they're probably coming out with three O without too much difficulty. It's whether they come out with 350 points or they come out with 280 because they scraped three rounds. So yeah. I mean, I, I think in this system, the seed four is actually kind of a trap at times because you've got the United Nations in there, which might actually be strong teams, right? You've got, well, newcomers, but that doesn't mean which, that Which, by they the way, once played... United Nations, I think, were third at the very beginning of the event. So, like, you cannot sleep on them. Yeah, point no. proven. And uh, you've got newcomers, but it's not like they're only starting to play 40k, right? Which I think is the show's... The, the case of New Zealand and potentially Israel, with who have some experienced players on their team, sh- uh, shows that. So, uh, yeah, we've got that. But uh, I've got one more listener question on the pods, and uh, that would be who, in your opinion, is the dark horse of the pod phase? So a team that wasn't seed one but has a high chance of winning their pod and maybe even pushing for the for top spots of the event overall. 
So Nathan, uh, do you have a team like that looking at both, obviously, uh, the pods and the lists, maybe? Yeah. So we, again, we kind of alluded to it earlier. It's kind of between pod seven and pod nine. I'd say New Zealand, if they've got the player skill that I think they have throughout the entire team, again, can definitely come away with. They could even come away with two wins. They might lose to Australia, or they could even draw with Australia. They could come away with two wins, maybe two wins and a draw. Uh, seven, Iceland, Scotland. Scotland take it far more seriously than they have done in the past. Iceland... Have... And they were preparing a lot with us as well, because yes. we had Ines and Brian for a week in Poland where we playtested and talked about a lot of ideas. Yeah, they're in that nice position where, how do I put it? It's kind of like a good team that's looking to climb higher can look around and go, I want to work with the Icelandic team. I want to work with the Poland team. I want to share ideas. And it was always something we sometimes struggled with with England, where it's like, do we want to give away our ideas or do we want to learn stuff from other people? And it's difficult to balance that if you're trying to win. Yeah, but people don't like yeah. you, so it's also makes it <laughs> Yeah, easier. nobody likes us. It's hard. Uh, ungrateful colonials. They just, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well... You're not making your case better, bro. <laughs> well, it's not our fault they all made us the pantomime villain. Sorry, you lost, we right, so... Yeah. We came fit Why last year. Embrace not, it. Yeah, we're, we're nice, we're nice. I, I blame Naz. He started that crusade of memes. On the uh, banter page. Anyway, uh, what was the actual question? Oh, yeah. I think New Zealand will do very well. It's their first year, but they've got good players. Uh, and then Iceland and Scotland are massively on the rise. And they're in a, a pod that they can fight to win that. Like, you could, Scotland could come out of that with two wins and a loss, two wins and a draw. Again, Iceland could do the same. Looking at pods one to six, I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah. Canada, Germany. Uh, pod three's interesting, uh, but probably Sweden, USA, Netherlands. I can Poland. see a draw happening between Sweden and Greece. Thank I don't know what Greece is turning up this year. They haven't been for a couple of years, have they? Am I doing that mm. correctly? That was previous. I don't think they ever had like a very good score, but I know some of the players that are decent and I play them on DTS to know enough to not just mm. scoff at them. And then Italy are good. They are a good team, sort of. Uh, I don't really know what to say about Italy. But yeah, they can definitely take points off people uh, if they're not getting cards. Yeah, they are the best seat free by far. Yeah. Okay, and I've got two more questions this time from the stat check Discord. Uh, both brought up by Sam, and he's asking what are some easy traps people can fall into during the pot stage? So there's one thing that I already mentioned earlier during the event. Uh, I mean, during the podcast. Boy, am I brain dead at this point. Anyway, so... What I was trying to say is that top teams should avoid playing GSC or Elder Mirrors. As you mentioned, Nathan, GSC Mirror can go very volatile if someone decides to do so. So those are matchups that you can make a huge swing that will end up with you 
even probably losing a game into a lesser team that knows that skill-wise and pairing-wise alone they cannot win it. So they can try to do the pairings in such way to force you to take those completely gambly matchups. So that's a one. Do you have something else? Yeah, I guess we've kind of alluded to it earlier. It's an it's a prime opportune moment to get scores if you're a top team or if you're trying to be a top team. Uh, again, this sounds very try hard, but it's a little bit. Don't just win the round. Try and push the points differential as much as you can. Uh, and then it's a little bit like we discussed earlier with Belgium. It's how much you want to prep. Uh, do you do a load of it's it's how you want to manage your time leading up to the event do you want to plan for the top seed army in your pairings in your pod sorry and try and beat them or do you just want to focus predominantly on the other two try and get points out of those and try and say get two wins uh yeah there's a quite a few different ways especially if you're a new African team you can just try and like Typer said, just go for the gambles because, and as a top team, you need to be careful of that. They, you, you might come out of that pairings match being like, oh, actually, this could go really wrong. And that's where sometimes the top teams have to pull out the player skill ability. And that usually works, hopefully, but it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. Right. And, uh, there's a second question from Samba. I'm pretty confident we've already answered that. So what is the general strategy for teams in their pods? Do you focus heavier on those matchups or against once in later rounds? And what's the balance? So I think, Typhus, you've pretty much mentioned that already, that uh, for teams from seed one, uh, they need to prepare for other seed ones, potentially, trying to get that win. Whilst for the other teams, to all, they can just focus on the pod phase more. Yeah. Than the later rounds. Anything yeah. you guys want to add to, to and that statement? To or... also explain that, add one more thing to it. That's because if you are a seed one team, you can expect who you will play. If you are seed two, three, four, depending how you do in the in your pod phase, you can end up playing anyone. And having that in mind, because if you are a seed one team, if you then lose a game, probably you had enough battle points to still play against seed one team that lost because you should be around maybe you get like a seed two team that won the, the round but like something around that thing but if you won you're already playing another seed one if you win again another seed one etc etc but with seed twos three fours they can end up playing against anyone with how volatile pots can get so I would say if you're a if you can Front load your points by over preparing in your pod. If you're a new team like seat three, four, that's your chance to actually perform well or better than last year's. All right. Um, I think we can close out the pods as in discussing those. So let's take them off the screen and uh, uh, let's move on to lists. So uh, there's been quite a while since lists are live. I'm going to show you one list that I wanted to 
say a word or two about, or actually was hoping you guys would do that. And it's an obvious one. Uh, it has to be this one. So it's the list that Liam Hackett's bringing. Uh, so he won last year's Warmaster. He got uh, most overall points in the team event as well, if I remember correctly. And well, uh, uh, he's a known menace, and his lists have defined the meta, one could say. So um, what's he got, and which one of you is more comfortable talking about Necrons? I think both of us, because we analyzed this list before. Well, perfect. So you want to take it, Nathan? Yeah, I'll start off. Again, if we're talking about tiers, Liam Hackett is a top-tier player. Uh, and then we look at the lists and seed like, one within seed one exactly <laughs> the creme de la creme I hope he's, his ego's exploded um, <laughs> so but then you look at the list and go what does that do so if, you, if you're looking at it if it's like oh it's two massive blocks of warriors and was it 800 points of characters uh, and you're just like where's the damage output and where's where's the rest of it uh, because there is no damage output. <laughs> not really. No, it's it's got some plink damage, but other than that, he's like, oh, okay, really? Where is the damage coming from? And then you play some games with it and go, oh, that's what it is. Uh, so obviously, two big Necron Warrior units, uh, one with all twenty Gauze Reapers, the other with nineteen Gauze Reaper and one Gauze Flayer, predominantly because the characters joining the unit, one will be being able to advance. Uh, so having one extra gun with a long range is nice. Uh, the ghost arc we thought was an interesting so choice. So to give to that, Chronomancer gives you move after shooting, so you yeah. want to have that one guy being able to shoot yeah. and still hide your characters if someone has precision of some sort. Yes, yeah. Uh, not 100% sure what the ghost arc is doing there, because nothing can really go in it, but it has some bonuses to the army. You obviously have to start a character in it, so we thought it was um, is it Orokin who's going to start? Sheriff, Sheriff, Sheriff. Sorry, yeah. So he uh, and he cannot give his buffer on one then. So yeah, it was kind of a okay, interesting to see what that choice is. But yeah, it's two blobs of warriors. They have they have the ability to do some decent damage against certain targets with the strats available and the buffs. He hasn't gone for the fill no pain on one of them, but one of them is. Like a deep striking move, and then the other one is like an advancing unit. Uh, we kind of felt that this was if you can't literally deal with a whole warrior block in one thing of shooting, which there's not a whole lot of things in the game that really can. You're looking at wraith cannons that roll really well, or demo charges, because uh, you just get so many shots that so many units. Like yes. Black Templars. Yeah, as I just learned. Uh, yeah, very little's actually knocking them all down in one go. Uh, so they all start getting back up. They all start denying primary. It seems like a very good list to draw points out of people. And I'd imagine this feels very, very good in pairings because it just doesn't have an awful matrix. Uh, yeah. and it just Unless opposing team actually brought armies that are really good into it. Yes. So it has like it doesn't have awful matrix, and at the same time, it can take away points from some top armies. Mm -hmm. Like I can see it being quite comfortable playing into Eldar, knowing that 
most of the time if they don't really roll crazy high which might happen and you cannot do anything about it will not kill that blob and suddenly you kill nothing yeah yeah so yeah like kind of the less right knights the better really so given Australia's team comp, how do you guys think they'll use this list? Uh, will they use it early on or keep it uh, on I their think hand this is an for attacker. longer? To... I don't think this is a defender. I think this is a dedicated cold block into a specific matchups and leaving it into later, maybe the last four matchups, last four pairings where you try to navigate the pairings in a way of removing the matchups you do not want to play with this army and then trying to grab some of the lists that you know you are favorable into, like say, I think this army overs wins scoring battle against like Lichgard Necrons. I think this army can sometimes play into Eldar. So there are ways of actually using it against some of the top armies that opponent brings, but you need to still know that sometimes it can just die. And if you lose too many pieces of this list in one turn, suddenly it will just fold like a piece of paper because you cannot afford to lose one of those blobs because then you lose enough space on the board and footprint that you cannot take it back by in any way and you will just keep losing units after unit. Yeah. Okay, so um, <clears throat> before we move on, we've actually had several two people asking on various discords about the Australian faction picks and are they playing 5D chess again, or are they of their mark not bringing custodies and taking double knights? So what do you guys think about their team comp before we carry on with lists, Nathan? So first of all, Nathan, you want to do the shameless plug? Go look at our other episode. <laughs> yeah, we did. So we, we covered the Australian list in much more detail. We'll obviously do a brief version of it like now. Like one hour long detail. So. Yeah, there was a lot to get through. They had interesting stuff. Um, they could be playing uh, 4D chess. Um, if you look at all the lists in face value, you might look at it and go, well, I don't quite understand the Thousand Suns list with no Magnus. It seems like it's a lot more blocky, and then it misses some big, like, Magnus, if there's a reason I would imagine, I think 90% of those Thousand Suns, if not 95, all took Magnus, because it adds a lot to that army. It, uh, it yeah. does quite a lot in your pairings uh, or that armor's pairings. They didn't take custodes. Uh, from what I've heard, they don't necessarily like custodes that much. Interesting. They then, don't... Seeing from the banter channels, they thought like Deathwatch is the only marine army you can take. Yeah, and they didn't take marines at all. If I remember correctly. So yeah, the double knight option. Now that was always a it was one that we felt we were quite surprised with. Um, it was always going to be... We didn't fit... Me, personally, I don't know how you necessarily pair Double Knights. IK, while good, it's like we discussed earlier, they have a weird place in the Matrix. Uh, sorry, weird place in pairings where you actually put them. And every time that you look at taking Double Knights usually one suffers more than the other. Now, it's a little bit different this year because terrain's a bit different, but I'd be interesting to see how they do. I don't personally think it's the best combination, but if they've run through the pairings matrix for what they think 
everyone else is taking, then because you like like we said earlier, they've obviously submitted the lists, not necessarily knowing what every other part of the world is taking. And Australia's always had a very different method. Their lists last year were very different, very interesting, to the point where people didn't know what they did, and then they got smashed by them because they probably didn't put the time in to learn. So it's kind of a maybe they've done that again, but it doesn't feel like tenth is as complicated as ninth was. So the lists are a little bit more, well, 10th in general is a little bit more meat and potatoes. Uh, their mid list is fantastic. Um, it looks like it doesn't do anything, but it really does. It's great scoring, great at blocking. It, with good ability and not getting clocked out, that mid list will go and do a real good chunk of points for them. So their composition is actually very, very good. It's just whether it bears really are... well when I was yes. bearing them as yeah. Aussies. It, it really felt nice to actually work it because they've had nice coverage with their counters. Mm -hmm. But it's just whether are those knights going to pull in the points they need to pull in? Are there interesting tech choices in some of their armies actually advantageous or do they miss something? We'll have to just see. Because you can't rule them out. And not that we are ruling them out, but you can't say, oh, these lists are not good because they're obviously very good. They're obviously very good players. They are the reigning defending undefeated champs of the WTC right now. So, yeah, I think they'll do very well with them. All right, uh, back to lists then. Uh, you guys have had the chance to look at a number of lists, analyze them deeply on the stat check episodes. So um, I'm counting on some favorites here that you can also share the insight of uh, here in this episode. So um, Typhus, uh, surprise me with a list. Tell me where to look. I mean, French Black Templars. All right. That one, that one is straight up an army to look into. And this is an army that you need to take a notepad, write down all of the buffs, all of the benefits, all of the stratagems, and then run it through calculator and then realize that it is actually good. And okay. Have, and you have an epiphany when you do that. And I will not spoil all of the calcs. I haven't said them directly in the episode about France that we've recorded as well. I urge everyone to do it themselves because, by the way, I think this is something you should do if you want to get better at the game. You should run those calcs. You should realize what are your damage thresholds, etc. Because those will make your decision making better, especially if you are playing a new army. Having all of those decision like breakpoints noted down on the piece of paper makes your decision making easier during your turn. So do that. I'm not spoiling it, but this is a melee army with a lot of marines that looks like a list from fourth edition, and I love it. <laughs> and when it comes to another army that looks like a list from fourth fifth edition, this is Polish. Angels, where you have actually one of the... I was told there's, I think, three Land Raiders at the event. There's this Land Raider from Polish list brought by Leshu. There's another Polish Land Raider in one of the UN teams. And then I think that same UN team has Land Raider in Chaos Space Marines. So seeing those boys back makes me just happy because 
I haven't seen them since fifth. Um, but to can you tell us more about the Black Temper list? Because it's got what a big blob of Crusaders. Uh, so it has Grimaldus, two, two trap lines on jab packs, twenty man squad of Primaris Crusaders, two times ten man squads of assault squads, uh, two times three inceptors with bolters, three whirlwinds, two five two five man squads of scouts, and singular land speeder. I'm just talking from my memory, but it seems my memory didn't fail me in the last two hours. So that's that's a good sign. I'm not yet on the dementia mode. That's great. <laughs> but uh, other than that, this army has like few blocks of insanely powerful melee units that just have such force multipliers that you are not used to it. And also the 20-man squad with Grimaldus with Advance and Charge can cover a lot of board and like close out opponent in their deployment zone because... This army has all those new tricks like saying opponent cannot fall back on the four up and stuff like that, which can win you a game because if you just block him in deployment zone and then they suddenly cannot shoot you and they kind of do not want to fight you in melee unless they are army that can do that, they are just losing that game. So this is a niche army. This will be a very demanding army to play. And I love the fact that Olivier for a second year in a row is taking something straight out of his own ideas and it is something new. And looks uh, quite strong. Yeah. Completely different usage within the pairings compared to like Death Watch or Dark Angels. Mm. Right. Um, Nathan, I feel like you might have a needs list you want to talk about. Uh, actually, wrong? it depends. If it's my favorite list, I actually really like the Spanish Demon list. Okay. My favorite list. Um, uh, so let's not... let's do that then. Hmm. And that is Spanish Demons. That's not Demons. Yeah, they do not have Earth Faker batteries nor <laughs> Acolyte hybrids. Okay. Thank God. <laughs> Uh, actually, as a somewhat of a demon player, I, I'd appreciate those tools <laughs> in that book. Um, I mean, you mean decent shooting? Yes. <laughs> right, demons, a monster mash. Yeah, uh, so it's predominantly monster mash. Mm. But uh, so you'd standard Bellacor, Bloodthirster with the Super Axe, Lord of Change with the Everstave, Shalaxi, because she's straight in combat. And then he's actually got Skullmaster in a unit of six blood crushers. Now, I absolutely love blood crushers because in this edition, they're T7, four wounds with a four percent run. Uh, they've got some nice little tricks with them. They have a if you deep strike him next to Bellacore, you get a five inch charge because of the icon. They then, because of the character, you do a battle shock test after you charge. And with that, you can then use the stratagem. Uh, is it something of terror where you get plus one AP for your attacks but if the unit is battle shook which if you say near Bellacor or within shadow the shadow range uh, if you fail that you get four reals to wound and what the Skullmaster does in that unit is all the bladed horns on the juggernauts all get devastated so if you are battle shook then you get seven dudes at four attacks apiece, uh, so 28. 
hitting on twos next to a bloodthirster and then getting four rerolls to wound with devastating wounds and because you've used the strat it's also ap2 so it's strength six lance ap2 so that unit actually pumps out a bucket load of damage and then you've got the actual guys on top getting two attacks each strength six minus two two damage i think uh they're hitting on twos if they're next to a bloodthirster as well it's just there's and then demons just have some great strats picking up units uh tagging objectives real ones to in buns Everything's got invulnerable saves, all the flame is four pluses, all the blood crushes. I think almost everything except for Nurglings are four plus invun in this list. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And then you've yep. got little nice things like Nurglings. You can just hide them behind a wall next to your one in monsters, somebody charge your monsters. You might as well want to hit, because for some reason everything in six inches of Nurglings you might as well want to hit. For some reason. Uh yeah, it's just, I don't know how super competitive it's going to be, but it's of lists that I find enjoyable and fun to look at, that's one of them. Or the Aussie Nid list, because I think that's fantastic as well. Okay, let's do that then. Uh, if you've got it, Tyranid, I assume there's less Nids to search through. There we go. Yeah, Aussie Nids. Death Leaper, Neuro Tyrant, and then, holy crap, that's a lot of Gargoyles. I think it's 60 Gargoyles, 20 Thermagons, 24 Thermagons, 60 Thermas, 11 Neurogons, Biobord, 2 Exocrines, 2 Lictors, uh, 3 Raveners, 3 Venom Tropes, 3 Zontropes, and another 3 Zontropes, from my memory. Well done. Your memory. So, um, Nathan, why don't you talk us through it? The... So, yeah, we did a fun analysis on a previous episode, but, yeah, it's the basis of there's some very nice tricks where you can just stick a load because he's got two single lictors and death leaper. You can stick the lone operative on the back of the objective and then just crowd all the area in front of it. So, yeah, yeah you lose the gaunt unit, but it, who cares? You've stopped your opponent getting onto the primary as well as then stop them getting within 12 to be able to shoot the lone operative. So you've lost a Gaunt squad, but you're still gaining all your points. You can, if, if this list goes kind of first as well, it's, it's very good at being, I'll just cover the board, I'll block you with gargoyles, I'll just chuck a 20-man gargoyle unit, 24 inches in a turn, and just, if you can't move through me, then you I'll block off half the board. So it's able to score primary and score cards phenomenally well. Doesn't do a whole lot of damage. But then again, even these 20-man units next to a Venomthrope, pop, feel no pain on them. Not everybody has guns that actually like massively kill 20-man yeah. units that well. Another thing for people who only played in ninth, this army is not something they would be scared of but i think the thing that changed a lot in 10th compared to 9 is the fact that you cannot use charges to gain movement mm -hmm. and that was a thing that you would previously do play when you are playing against hard and trying to defend from move blocking nowadays move blocking is way more effective unless something has fly because then well cannot you cannot do much about it yeah but this means that this army will be very good into, like, say, Death Stars. Like, you think that Custodies killed this army. You think Necrons killed this army. Cool, but what if they killed this whole army in their own deployment zone? Yeah. 
good game. You've done nothing from secondaries, probably, and nothing from primaries. Good job, man. That's why I was saying that this army is very good. For sure. And then just how it scores now is also, even in even in potentially bad matchups, it's very hard to push it to 20 mils because it just has so much redundancy built into it. Okay, and uh, one more from Typhus. Give me a list. <laughs> You're putting me on a spot, man. Mm -hmm. uh, That's why I actually, do. Actually, from the teams I've looked into, uh, I do not have something like from the top of my mind. I think the Grey Knights that USA has brought, I think that's something that's very unorthodox or maybe their orcs which are also present in Canada and I think some version of it is taken by Finland. So Grey Knights or orcs? I think Grey Knights, this is a shorter discussion. There's 30, <laughs> 20 Terminators GK. and 10 Paladins and some Kalidus and, and I think 5 yeah, exaction only. Hmm. Yeah, the at, formatting an exaction squad should should be like penalized by hanging. You can make that readable, but for some reason you decide not to. Anyway, <laughs> this is a very fun army because if you do not know what it does, you will lose. And you will lose fast. And it has so many tricks that it's very hard to understand its macro approach. But I can imagine this army will be performing insanely well for Jack in the very first few rounds until he faces teams that will have reps into it. And then suddenly it will be a little less performing than at the very beginning. But this is a nice army. It doesn't really shoot well. Like best AP is AP1 and strength is eight. So that's not great. Like you cannot really kill anything in the shooting phase as much. In melee you can kill, but this army is really good at like teleporting around trying to do secondaries and like playing for a draw. And we've done also a longer analysis on this one when we were talking about USA and Nathan was giving some more insights because Nathan, you actually played the army a few times. Yeah. But this is, this is a nice army, different approach. And this is one of at the whole event. So Nathan, you want to add anything about it? One thing was quite interesting. I think uh, Art of War actually put up a video of this playing against something. And one thing. Necrons. Yeah, against the Necrons. And what was quite interesting against the Necrons, it was something he was talking about was if you have the luxury of being able to do it, he just constantly keeps charging with it. Like he just it keeps putting stuff next to you and just charges you and then goes for the charges. And if he doesn't make the charges, then he just disappears with the unit and just things like that, where it's just like. It can kind of adjust you down in combat. Obviously, some armies out combat this, but yeah, predominantly it does feel like it bounces around and scores quite a lot. But it's definitely interesting, and because it's taken by a top team, it's definitely one to watch. I would be more... I would say it's a bit like Typhus said. When you know the tricks about the list, because it doesn't always have the highest damage output, maybe it doesn't smash everybody from the higher teams. Uh, 
But then again, it might just be used in pairings as a bounce around and score. And it can do that quite well and get its draws and things like that. And if opponent fucks around, he will find out. All right. So um, thanks for the quick list analysis and bringing uh, some interesting ones to our attention. And I think with that, uh, we will round out this episode, unless you guys have got anything else you want to add just in general. We're all good? Yeah, I think so. Another shameless plug if you want to see more talk about the armies and please watch us at the event maybe you want to talk more about the joker what's the plan yeah, what's the setup sure. i mean your plugs aren't exactly shameless because we've got your logo in our logo in this one as well so it's kind of like expected nevertheless uh, like you said uh, the three of us along with nathan henning and uh, tweak will be doing the studio during the wtc what this means is that during each round, we will probably go on air at least twice to discuss pairings, matchups, any interesting scores that come out already, uh, all sorts of trivia, maybe, as well. And we'll also be doing interviews with players that have already finished or are yet to start the game. Uh, also, the sponsors will definitely have uh, Adam from the Army Painter on. Uh, and uh, Josh, I believe, from BCP. Uh, and uh, they'll be mentioning giveaways and stuff like that. So you might want to tune in for that reason as well. We'll be streaming into our channel. We'll be streaming into the WTC channel. And um, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, it's not it. It's a lot and it's worth watching. So be sure to check it out during the event starting on Thursday, uh, August 10th. Yeah, because you will see streams of the games themselves, but we'll give overview of the whole round and maybe some delve deeper into specific matchups, which you might not see when watching only one game on a stream with commentators talking about that one specific game. Exactly. So that's that. And uh, I'm really hoping you'll be watching us there. Uh, thanks, guys, for to coming in to talk here. Uh, so thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Typhus. Uh, I was Joker. This is Contact Lost. Uh, if you like what we do, please do uh, like our content, subscribe to it on YouTube and other uh, streaming podcast platforms and also you can become a patron now so uh, the link to that will be linked below and from here I'd also like to thank David, Pumba and Leshu for asking questions on the Discord. If you want to be part of the show become a patron. Okay I think I've said it all now so once again thanks guys and uh, see you at the WTC. Bye bye. See you. Bye guys.